If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. As we continue looking at the book of Titus this morning, this morning we will be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, in these verses, Paul transitions from what he has been doing earlier here in chapter 2. Earlier in chapter 2, he was addressing the various demographics in the church, and now he grounds those instructions that he has given and grounds them on the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he tells us here that the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, the grace of God, which brings salvation to us, also teaches us to do those very things, which Paul has explicitly commanded for those various groups that he had been speaking of earlier in the chapter. This call to godly living earlier in the chapter flows straight from the grace of God in the gospel. The Godly instructions that are given are no afterthought, no mere add-on, but rather they are part and parcel of the package. The grace of God saves us from sin. We're cleansed from sin by faith through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we are turned away from it, practically turned away from sin, because we are taught, taught by the grace of God. This grace has appeared. It has called us to believe in Christ. This grace that has called us also instructs us, teaches us how to live. And it does so, as as one writer, I think, helpfully put it, less by imposing any conscience restraint than by infusing and nourishing the desires which breathe after conformity to the will of God. And herein lies the difference between the law and the gospel. The idea is that the grace of God that teaches us is not so much a constrainer, a restrictor. That would be be more law. What the gospel does is it changes our hearts, as it were. And to use the language of the Old Testament, the law of God becomes written on our hearts so that this this is what we want. It's not simply that we are cut off from doing the sin that we want to do. Now our hearts are changed so that we actually want to do these things which God has commanded us in the law. Now, it's certainly true that the moral law instructs and teaches us what is good and pleasing in God's sight and therefore shows us what is required of us. It also shows us how far short we fall of the righteousness of God. But again, the law as such is powerless to change us. It's powerless to enable us to obey and therefore powerless to bring out of us the righteousness that is required by God and Therefore, Paul can say in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, 
Christ died needlessly. Similarly, Galatians 3, 21 and 22. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Again, the law, the law could not save, couldn't save us from our sin, and it's powerless to change our hearts. But God does this. Likewise, Romans 8, 3 and 4, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law was powerless to save us, powerless to change us. God sent Christ to save us, and now the Spirit is working to change us. And so God in His grace has sent Christ into the world to live and die and rise again for us so that we can be forgiven of our sins and so that we may receive the imputed righteousness of Christ freely given to us and stand before God as righteous and God sent Christ also that we might be sanctified. It is the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ worked in us by the Holy Spirit that changes our hearts, teaches us, and draws us toward holiness. We want holiness because the grace of God has taught us to love holiness. And thus, as we say in our confession of faith as a church, in the article concerning the harmony of the law and the gospel, we believe that the law of God is the eternal and unchangeable rule of his moral government, that it is holy, just, and good, and that the inability which the scriptures ascribe to fallen men to fulfill its precepts arises entirely from their love to sin, to deliver them from which, and to restore them through a mediator to unfeigned obedience to the holy law is one great end of the gospel and of the means of grace connected with the establishment of the visible church. In other words, one of the purposes of the gospel is to restore us to a true and sincere obedience to the law. Not merely a constrained obedience where we simply can't do sin, but rather a heartfelt and sincere obedience by which we love righteousness and love all that God has commanded us and want to do those things. And that is what these verses before us this morning are all about. The grace of God redeeming us from sin and then instructing us how to live. And so as we consider these few verses this morning, let's consider first how the grace of God has appeared. So that's that's point number one, how the grace of God has appeared. Secondly, how the grace of God teaches us to live in this present age. And then thirdly, how the grace of God teaches us to live in anticipation of the age which is to come. And so, first, how the grace of God has appeared, how the grace of God teaches us to live in the present age, and then how the grace of God teaches us to live in anticipation of the age to come. And so, first of all, we find in verse 11, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Or, as the marginal note in the New American Standard indicates, and uh, in the same general sense, the King James translates it this way also, could be translated as saying that the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation. And when we consider these words, we need to be clear here about 
what is being said and what is not being said. Now, when we hear the word all, our first sight reading might be to take the word all in the sense of every individual, no exceptions. Someone wants to put it, all means all, and that's all that all means. We might be inclined to think that way at first, but what we find actually is that sometimes Scripture clearly uses the word all in a different sense. And so, for instance, Acts 22.15, we read Paul's recounting of the words of Ananias uh, to him after his conversion. And Ananias was sent by God to lay his hands on Saul so that his sight would be restored. And so Ananias said to Saul, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now Paul was certainly a witness to many men. He was certainly a witness to all kinds of men. Jews, Gentiles, kings, common people, men, women, slaves, masters, and so on. But Paul was not a witness for Christ, to every individual person in the first century, nor certainly in the centuries since then. And so the word all is not always used in the sense of every individual, no exceptions. And so then here, when we read that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, what does this mean? Has salvation come to all men in the sense that every individual man and woman is saved? Absolutely not. The Bible does not teach universalism. Our Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, that the gate is wide and the way is, wa- the way is broad. That leads to destruction, and there are many, many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow. That leads to life. There are few who find it. Scriptures do not teach universalism, that every individual is saved. And so we could also ask, has the grace of God appeared to all men in the sense that all have heard the message of salvation through Christ? Well, again, the answer is no. Unfortunately, many have not heard. It seems rather to be the case that what Paul is saying here is that the grace of God has appeared to all men in the sense that now, with the coming of Christ into the world, the good news of God's saving grace is no longer so largely confined to the nation of Israel as it was in Old Testament times but that now that message goes out without distinction to Gentiles as well as to Israelites. And it goes out also to all kinds and classes of both Jews and Gentiles. The immediate context here of Titus chapter 2, again, is speaking of these various demographics within the church. We've got older women, younger women, older men, younger men, slaves. The grace of God goes out to all of these groups and brings salvation to all who repent and believe. The word all is sometimes used in more nuanced ways than we might at first think. But the good news of the gospel is that all who will believe and repent, every individual who will believe in Jesus and repent of their sins, will be forgiven, reconciled to God, and receive the gift of eternal life. Now this fact that the grace of God has appeared to all, and that it goes forth to the nations of the world and all sorts and conditions of men and women in the world should direct us, first of all, to be thankful to God. We were born and conceived in sin, and we deserve absolutely no good thing from God. But God, in His grace, has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for us and to rise again. And we find the purpose for that in verse 14 where we read that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, that is to to buy us back 
from our lawlessness, to save us from the penalty of that lawlessness, which is eternal judgment, to save us from the dominion of that sin. We were enslaved to it. And to save us from the practice of sin, by which we bring destruction to ourselves and to those around us, and by which we dishonor God. Jesus Christ came to redeem us from every lawless deed. And so we should be full of gratitude that this grace has appeared to all men when not even one man deserved such grace. And in recognizing the grace, that the grace of God has appeared to all men, we must also recognize that we stand responsible and accountable for the fact that it has been revealed to us. We are more blessed than we know. Our ancient Gentile forefathers lived in darkness and idolatry, without hope and without God in the world, having their foolish hearts darkened because they did not see fit to honor God as God. As Paul said in Acts 14, 16, in the generations gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own ways. That was, that was the Old Testament times for the, for the Gentile nations. God, God let them go their own ways. But as Paul would later on say to the crowd in Mars Hill in Athens, Acts 17, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. We are blessed and that we live in the days in which the gospel is now proclaimed among the nations. And to be even more particularly, we live in a country where the gospel has been freely proclaimed for a long time. We have easy access to the Bible in a language that we can understand. We can come to church and worship God, hear the word of God read, hear the gospel proclaimed to this day, to this very day. Not everyone enjoys a privilege like this. And so then we have these great privileges. And since we do, all of us here who are present right now should recognize the great accountability and responsibility that we have because we're hearing a message that contains eternal consequences. And this message is opened and proclaimed from the Word of God. And so consider the great responsibility that is yours, to listen to it, to believe it, to obey it. Because this great privilege that we have increases our responsibility. So yes, the grace of God has appeared to all men in that it goes out to the nations of the world, and we should be thankful for this. And we should also take heed to ourselves that we do not trifle with this eternal gospel. And this brings us then to our second point, which is how the grace of God teaches us to live in respect to this present age. And we find this there in verse 12. The same grace that has brought us salvation also instructs us. And Paul says that it instructs us to deny two things here. To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Chrysostom in the ancient church noted that Paul has said not avoiding, but denying. Denying implies the greatest distance, the greatest hatred and aversion. Or as another writer expressed it, this does not consist only in mourning for or turning from all manner of sin. And that too only in our lives, but our hearts and affections also so as to dry up the fountain as well as to disperse the streams and to kill the root as well as lop off the branches of sin within us. This is what it means to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Not simply to chop off 
trim off the uh, top of the plant, but rather to dig it up, get it out by the roots. My family, as many of you know, has a history of landscaping and nursery work. And my grandfather used to have a saying that, that he would say when, uh, when they were at a, at a landscape job and were, were digging out these old stumps of, of bushes or trees that had been there. He would say, when you get that last root cut, it'll come out of there. That's what we're supposed to do when we're denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Not simply chop off the tops of it, not simply cut one or two roots. We're supposed to be cutting all the roots. Get it out of there. Deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Now, let's look at those two particular terms, ungodliness and worldly lust. At first glance, we might be inclined to think of those two terms as, as roughly synonymous with each other, meaning more or less the same thing. But in fact, the, though the two terms both signify sin, they seem to point toward two different categories of sin. Ungodliness points particularly to irreverence toward God in one way or another. And then the phrase worldly lusts is used in reference to the things of this earth which consume us, the pleasures of the flesh, things which God has forbidden in his word. Now let's, let's consider these, these two terms a little bit. God's grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, to deny irreverence, if we compare two negatives together, denying irreverence for God. Now what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that we must turn away from everything that does not give to God the honor that is due to his name. Now, what kinds of things fail to give God the honor that is due to his name? These would be things like imbibing false doctrine, which is to say believing false things about God, failing to recognize and reverence God for, for who he is, as he has revealed himself to be in his word as the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, failing to recognize the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ truly is our great God and Savior, and that he is also true man, like unto us in all things except sin. If we embrace false teaching or false opinions regarding those things, that, that's ungodliness. That is irreverence. Toward God, teaching us to deny ungodliness, the grace of God teaches us to banish from our minds all unworthy thoughts of God and all thoughts which would accuse him of injustice or of unfaithfulness. The call to deny ungodliness calls us to strive against all unbelief and all doubt. The grace of God also teaches us in this regard to cut off all false worship, be it a worship of false gods or an attempt to worship God in a way that he's not authorized in his word, as we spoke this morning during the, the family catechism time. If the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness, then it also teaches us to reject everything that would draw us away from the worship of God. Now, certainly we should be worshiping God every day through faithful prayer and faithful living, but in particular, true reverence for God entails us also taking our place among the people of God when they gather and not forsaking the assembly of the church. Now, obviously, as we all know, that in the last year there have been some extenuating circumstances. But even still, with the, with the grace of God, it teaches us to deny ungodliness. It teaches us to, therefore, deny those things which would get in the way of the rightful worship which we owe to God. This instruction to 
deny ungodliness also teaches us that we should be careful of how we speak of God and how we conduct ourselves as we live all of life in his presence. The grace of God teaches us to deny anything which promotes impiety, anything which puts us on a course of life that would direct us toward failing to give God the honor that is rightly due to him. Paul says that this grace of God also teaches us to deny worldly lusts. Worldly lusts would be those things characterized by John in 1 John 2.16 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, those things which come not from the Father but from the world. To be specific, this would include sexual lust, lust for power, lust for wealth, the desires to advance ourselves in some way that would be at the expense of others or at the expense of what is honest and just. This includes pride. This includes drunkenness and gluttony. The, the list could go on. The lusts of the flesh are many. The grace of God bringing salvation teaches us to deny these things, to cut them out by the root, to cut all of the roots. But the teaching of the grace of God is not only negative. It doesn't only instruct us what to reject, what to cast aside. It does forbid things, but it also instructs us positively as to what we should actually be pursuing and embracing. The old saying, how does it go, that if you aim at nothing, you'll be sure to hit it, right? And so the, the grace of God not only tells us what, what to avoid, but it also tells us where to direct ourselves, where we should be pointing ourselves. And... So it says that the grace of God teaches us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And we can think of these three characteristics as applying to three different regards in, in how we live. First, in regard to ourselves, we're to live sensibly. Secondly, in regard to others, we are to live righteously. And thirdly, with respect to God, we're to live godly. And so let's start close to home. The grace of God in the gospel teaches us to live sensibly. King James Version translated it as soberly. And we've seen this idea repeated again and again here in the book of Titus, this call to live sensibly or wisely. And it has this idea of being clear-headed, having one's mind and outlook in a right and clear frame, unclouded by various forms of drunkenness. Now, obviously, drunkenness with alcohol clouds the mind. And so we find in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says there, Do not get drunk on wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now we don't use the word dissipation a whole lot, but what dissipation means is that it's a wasting of something by misuse. And that's what drunkenness is. It's a wasting by misuse. Wasting and misusing one's life Wasting and misusing one's mind, one's resources. We can't do that as believers. Rather, we are to walk as wise. We are to redeem the time that we have and to make the most of it because the days are evil. But there are other ways to, to be drunk, other ways to not live soberly or sensibly than simply the issue of alcohol. So, for instance, Jesus tells us, Luke 21, 34, be on your heart, be on, be on guard so that your heart will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus links together dissipation, it's making a waste of something, drunkenness, and the worries of this life. The worries of this life 
can cloud our vision and can cloud our minds so that we do not live sensibly and soberly. Jesus says, be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down by these things. We can become worried about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear or where we're going to live or how we're going to support ourselves or how we're going to deal with the difficulties of life, be they health problems, emotional problems, hard times brought on by the sins that we have committed or by the sins that others have committed against us, the difficulties of being a parent, all of these, all of these things, this list could go on and on. What is it for you? What fills in the blank of the worries of this life? What is it that is clouding your mind? And it's not allowing you to live sensibly. We read here that we're to live sensibly, soberly. It's not to say that the problems are not real. It's not to say that even the problems are not serious. Not at all. But it is to say that we must live soberly, sensibly, in the midst of the problems. We must not allow them to to cloud our vision, to control us, to weigh down our hearts so that we're not living wisely in this world. Now, I know that that is much easier said than actually done, but this is what the grace of God teaches us to do, to live soberly, to live sensibly, self-controlled, as opposed to being controlled by these outside forces. And the way forward is shown to us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and following, where Peter reminds us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt us at the proper time, casting all of our anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is the way to avoid being drunk on the cares of the world, is to cast our anxiety on the Lord and to seek his grace, that we can live soberly in dependence upon him. Now we can also fail to live sensibly and soberly when we're puffed up with pride and when we think too highly of ourselves. And so Paul says in Romans 12:3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Again, we want to think with sound judgment, and when we're puffed up with pride and we think too much of ourselves, that's not actually sound judgment. Because we're actually thinking wrongly about ourselves, thinking too highly of ourselves and therefore too little of others and too little of God. This is not sober. This is not sensible. The grace of God teaches us otherwise. It teaches us to be humble and not think too highly of ourselves. Likewise, the grace of God teaches us to live righteously, to live righteously in regard to other men and women. This means treating them with justice, never giving them less than the good that they deserve. To use the words of Romans 13:7, we're to render to all what is due to them. This includes the paying of taxes, the showing of reverence and respect toward those to whom it is due, giving honor to those toward whom honor is due, living righteously toward our fellow man means loving our neighbors as ourselves. All of them are made in the image of God, just as we are, fearfully and wonderfully made, and we're commanded that we must treat them as we ourselves want to be treated. Righteousness requires that we be just and fair in our dealings with others and that we not take advantage of anyone for our own benefit or for what we think will be our own benefit. And living righteously also requires mercy. 
We don't just have to give the good that others deserve. True righteousness also requires that we show mercy. Isn't that what the Good Samaritan was commended for? After Jesus had told that parable, he asked the man to whom he told it, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And that man replied by saying, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and show mercy toward other people. Go show mercy toward your neighbors. This is what it means to love. This is how we are called to to live righteously. And the grace of God teaches us to do this. And there are many ways that, that mercy can be shown. It can be shown by seeking to help unwed mothers, by seeking to help homeless shelters give true help to those who are struggling. We can show mercy by simply forgiving those who have sinned against us and hurt us. Ways of showing mercy are great in number. We must be showing mercy towards others. This is how we live righteously. Likewise, the grace of God teaches us to live godly. That is, to live with true piety towards God. As one man described it, the right worshiping of the true God includes the whole system of those duties that we as creatures owe to him that made us. The right worshiping of God is both inward and outward. Inwardly, we recognize who God is as the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. We recognize his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his almighty power. And so we recognize him for who he is, and we reverence and fear him as such. And then this means that we submit to him in our hearts. We submit our hearts to his word, to all of his word, the plan of salvation, and all that Jesus and his apostles have taught to us to obey. And then this inward submission and reverence then will manifest itself outwardly. At the broadest level, this godliness will show itself in us presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship, as we find in Romans 12.1. At a more particular level, this inward submission and reverence will manifest itself in, in the worship that we give to God, be it public worship, family worship, private worship, It's not enough simply to avoid worshiping false gods. It's not enough to avoid going to an idolatrous temple. We actually have to give to God the worship that he has called us to. And so we're supposed to be listening to the word of God as it's preached. We're commanded to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, making melody in our hearts to God. We're commanded to observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The grace of God teaches us to live godly lives, lives that are devoted to God in this present age. This godliness has, as we've seen, inward and outward components, and both of them have to be there. We might think that we can just go through the motions outwardly, but if we're dead to God on the inside, none of that will be of any benefit to us. And if we think that we can serve God inwardly while rejecting what he has commanded concerning outward worship, then that is not the godliness that is taught to us by the gospel. The grace of God teaches us all-encompassing godliness, true and complete reverence for God, inward and outward. And so this is how we're to live in the present age. We renounce, reject, cut off ungodliness, worldly lusts, and then positively we live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And this then brings us to our third point, that the grace of God teaches us also how to live in the anticipation of the age to come. 
So we find in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And by these words, we are reminded of a very precious truth that this present order, this present age, with its odd mixture of pleasure and pain, triumph and tragedy, heartache and hopes, will one day come to an end. We recognize this as Christians. We realize as believers that our ultimate home is not here, but as we find in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. As believers, we are awaiting that great day, which Paul calls here the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope as Christians is the return of Christ, the return of this one who is our great God and Savior. Now, the New Testament entirely teaches and affirms the full deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it does not often do so in such explicit terms as are here. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is here called our great God. Chrysostom commented on this verse, asking rhetorically, where are those who say that the Son is inferior to the Father? Many years ago, I was sitting down with a Jehovah's Witness, and Jehovah's Witnesses actually do say that the Son is inferior to the Father. And as I was talking with this man, I brought him here to Titus 2.13 and tried to show him what is said right here about Jesus being our great God and Savior. And all he could say in response was essentially, I don't see where you're getting that from. I think he didn't want to see where I was getting it from. It was right there in the text. Jesus is our great God, fully equal to the Father in every divine perfection. He's the eternal word who was in the beginning, who was with God and himself was God, through whom all things were made. And our great God, Jesus Christ, here is also said to be our Savior. Now just think of, think of what all that entails. The plan of salvation. God promising Adam and Eve on the very day of their rebellion that there would be a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent, who would crush Satan. That promise was actually the first announcement to mankind of the plan of salvation which was already in existence. An eternal plan and promise which was a covenant between the Father and the Son. And in the fullness of time, God put that plan into action when he sent his Son into the world to be born of a woman, born under the law, so as to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The Son of God came into the world, and when he came, we find what he said in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And Jesus did the will of the Father. He went to the cross, rendering himself up to be crucified on our behalf, to bear our sins in his own body. And this, of course, is what Paul was speaking of there in verse 14, when he said that Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. He went freely to the cross and died so as to ransom us from the lawlessness into which we had sold ourselves. He gave himself for us to restore us from the dominion and tyranny of Satan and sin, 
and to bring us into the kingdom of God. And then being brought into the kingdom of God, his purpose in that was so that we might be zealous for every good work. Those good works are the very things that we've just been considering up in verse 12. Those things that we are taught by the gospel to do. To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And our blessed hope as we do these things is that the one who is both our great God and Savior is one day coming again. And this is our blessed hope. It is a certainty which will happen in God's own good time. We don't know when. And for those who are in Christ, it will be a day of great blessing. And so we summarize this in our confession of faith, saying we believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to a final retribution, and that a solemn separation will take place, that the wicked will be a judge to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. And so it is that our Lord Jesus tells us about this day in John chapter 5, 28 and 29, when he said, An hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who have done the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And we learn that this judgment, and therefore that this resurrection, occurs at the appearing of our great God and Savior. And so Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 31, and 32, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And though this day ought rightly to be a terror to those who are outside of Christ, nevertheless, the coming of Christ is the blessed hope of all who believe. This is the day when the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptibly. This is the day when those in Christ who do not sleep will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This will be the day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ And when Christ says to his people, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This is our blessed hope, the glorious coming of Christ and all that will transpire when he comes. Though it may sound trite, it is very true what one man said when he said, This is the blessed hope that causes us to cope. It may sound trite, but it's, it's actually true. This is the blessed hope that sustains us because we know that redemption and judgment is coming on that day. The just condemnation of the wicked will be dealt out toward them and the people of God will receive their full redemption and eternal inheritance and will be forever with the Lord. And whether we live to see that day or whether we rise from the grave and meet Christ in the air with our resurrected bodies at his return, either way, that day will be blessed. And so, Christian friend, as you live in this present age with all of its mixture of good and bad, be looking ahead to the blessed hope. The good news, as we find in Romans 13, 11, is that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. We don't know when Jesus is coming, but we know that it's one day sooner now than it was yesterday. We know 
that the glory that is to be revealed to us on that day will make the sufferings of this present life incomparable. Nothing to compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we will join in the worship of our great God and Savior, having no doubt but that the Lamb that was slain for us is worthy to receive glory and power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And we will say, as we find in Isaiah 25, 9, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord, for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, Christian friend, whatever you have suffered or are suffering, whatever losses and hardships you have endured or are enduring, please know that they will be more than rewarded on that day. So look to the blessed hope. Fix your eyes there. And friend, if you're here this morning and you have never turned away from your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, this gospel that is preached today calls to you to do this very thing, to repent, to believe, to recognize that you're a sinner, to turn away from those sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he is who he said he is, the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. Trust in him and be taught by this glorious gospel to renounce all wickedness, and live for him. If you have more questions about what that means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to someone that you know here who is a Christian. We'd be delighted to tell you more. But Christian friends, there's a great day coming. Let's not lose heart. It's nearer now than when we first believed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words that we have considered this morning. We ask for your grace, Lord, that we would be taught by it, that we would Live in accordance with all that you've taught us by the power of your Spirit working within us. Father, we pray that we would not be distracted, dissipated, and drunken by the things of this world, but rather that we would be looking ahead to the blessed hope. We thank you for your mercies and kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.